Okay, welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Thursday, February 22nd. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the purpose of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Doug Kretzinger and Teresa Whitaker. And for our first story, here is Teresa. Okay, our story on the front page is The American Queen Voyages Shuts Down by Gretchen Teske. There will be a noticeable difference in riverboat visitors to the Quad Cities this summer. American Queen Voyages, a popular riverboat cruise company, has shut down indefinitely. The company made the announcement on its website, citing an inability to rebound from the effects of the pandemic. The closure stems from parent company Hornblower Group announcing it has been acquired. As part of the restructuring, AQV was shut down due to its underperformance. The overnight cruise industry was especially affected by changes in, in travel preferences and, as a result, AQV has become financially unsustainable, the announcement reads. We are therefore shutting down the business and all future AQV cruises have been canceled. The company's Mississippi River Cruises made stops in Muscatine and Bettendorf last summer. It operated multiple riverboats along the Mississippi, including the American Queen, American Duchess, and American Countess. It also offered cruises along other rivers to the Midwest, excuse me, in the Midwest, and in the Pacific Northwest. In 2023 alone, American Queen brought in 2,165 visitors to the Quad Cities region, said Dave Harrell, CEO of Visit Quad Cities, who called the decision disappointing. Their presence, alongside all our river cruise partners, contributes significantly to enriching our regional destinations with vibrant tourism experiences and exploration of the Mississippi River. Visit Quad Cities will continue to monitor the situation and will provide updates to stakeholders who may be affected, he said. In its statement, the company said it was appreciative and proud of its crew. We are deeply proud of our crew and the outstanding travel experiences and service we have provided to our guests. As we reflect on the journey we have shared over the years, we are filled with gratitude for the privilege of serving our guests, partners, and agents, and for being part of our incredible local communities, it said. Refunds will be issued, the company stated. Claims can be filed online. And continuing on page one, the story, uh, Mayor Council Ways Tax Rate Hike, written by Sarah Watson. Bettendorf City Council is wrestling with whether to raise the city's tax rate to keep pace with growing costs and property tax limits set by the state, the mayor said. Bet Bettendorf Mayor Bob Gallagher spoke about the decision facing the council during his annual State of the City address on Wednesday. The city is adding six firefighters to its staff, who will be paid for temporarily by a SAFER, that's in caps, S-A-F-E-R, grant. Three are already in place and three will start in March, said Bettendorf Finance Director Jason Shedd. Quote, we heard our community tell us we want more firefighters. We want fully paid staff 24-7, every firehouse, and we're going to do it, end quote. That's what Gallagher said. The grant lasts three years, Shant said, and in the city plans to take over the cost of those staffers after the grant expires. In 2019, the family of a 27-year-old who died after an asthma attack in northern Bettendorf questioned the city as to why the fire station near the home was unstaffed. The city is also proposing to hire a Parks and Recreation Director, 
a fire marshal and a library outreach coordinator in fiscal year 2025, Shat said. But with a rollback of properties, taxable value, and state changes to property taxes, Gallagher said the city estimates it will miss out on about $3.18 million in property tax revenue because of the changes. Gallagher said, we do have some challenges with this budget. While the assessments went up in 2022, the state's rollback formula meant the average taxable value decreased on the average home in Bettendorf, Gallagher said. The rollback formula reduced the percentage of a home's assessed value that could be taxed from 54.65% to 46.34%, which is the largest one-year drop since 1979, Gallagher said. Also, state lawmakers enacted changes to property taxes by reducing growth in the general fund levy rate and expanding property tax exemptions. Quote, it's great to continue to grow and be healthy, but the state is racketing, ratcheting down what you can collect, end quote. That was Gallagher. Gallagher said the council is wrestling with how to pay for the six additional firefighters once the grant runs out and plan for the city's lost property tax revenue. Gallagher, Gallagher said the council is considering three options. They are keep the levy rate the same at $12.65 per $1,000 of taxable value. The owner of a $300,000 home that increased its value by 10% in 2022 would pay about $127 less in annual property taxes. If the home had increased by 20%, the homeowner would pay about $30 more annually in property taxes. And raise the levy rate 22 cents to 12.87 per $1,000 of taxable value. This would mean a $300,000 Bettendorf home that underwent a 10% assessment increase would pay $97 less in annual city property taxes. And for houses that increased 20%, it would mean paying $60 more in annual property taxes. And this one, raise the levy rate 46 cents to 13.11 per $1,000. Under this proposal, the owners of a $300,000 Bettendorf home whose assessment increased 10% would pay $65 less annually in city property taxes, and the same home that had increased 20% would pay $92 more in property taxes. Gallagher compared the yearly increases to what someone might pay for lunch or a dinner for two. Quote, we're not talking about a lot of money when you see this, but it's very important to kind of understand the bottom line to you, end quote. Bettendorf residents can enter their address on the city's website to find out how much they would pay in taxes under each option. The website, though, does not include credits residents may be eligible for. The city also received an upgraded bond rating from S&P Global Ratings to AA+, which is a step up from last year, Gallagher said. Higher bond ratings typically result in lower interest rates when cities sell bonds. We're going in the right direction, Gallagher said. The city plans to sell $15 million bonds at an interest rate of 3.45%, he said. Upcoming projects, Gallagher said, upcoming road projects in 2024-25 time frame include lights at Forest Grove and Devil's Glen, where the city is getting a lot more traffic, widening Devil's Glen to Forest Grove Road, reclamation and patching work on Criswell, 
reconstructing and widening the middle road to the TBK Bank Sports Complex and other projects. Gallagher highlighted the city continues to work on constructing the landing and amenity, which includes an ice skating rink in the winter and a water park in the summer owned by the city and operated by the YMCA. That timeline was recently changed so that Frozen Landing is expected to open sooner this winter and the pool later in May of 25. Creating a new comprehensive plan, planning for future growth, including sewer north of I-80, and building a gateway pedestrian bridge connecting the two main areas near the TBK Sports Complex. And I'm going to read um, the final in a series called Timeless Tickets that is... um, highlighting notable concerts in the Quad Cities. Um, And this one takes place in 1969. It's entitled, From Woodstock to Davenport, Creedence Clearwater Revival Played at Orpheum in 1969. This is by Gannon Hannibold. Our Timeless Ticket series for the 60s closes in August of 1969, at the end of a summer so infamous that Brian Adams kind of wrote about it 15 years later. It was a year where protest and patriotism went toe-to-toe in the thick of the Vietnam War. Man stepped on the moon for the first time in July, and in August, tens of thousands of music fans gathered in New York to see Woodstock Festival, which featured counterculture musicians and iconic rock acts like Joan Baez, The Who, Santana, The Band, and Jimi Hendrix. In the midnight hours of Sunday, August 17, 1969, Creedence Clearwater Revival played the Woodstock stage immediately following The Grateful Dead and just before Janis Joplin. And a week later, Credence went on tour, first stopping in Chicago, Minneapolis, and Kansas City. On August 26, 1969, they played at Davenport's RKO Orpheum Theater. The band was already a nationally known act at this time. In 1969 alone, they charted seven songs on the Billboard Hot 100, headlined by Bad Moon Rising and Proud Mary, both top five hits. To this day, they're still the only band to have five number two songs on the Billboard Hot 100 without ever having a number one. Just a week before Woodstock, CCR released Green River, their second album of 69, and the home of Bad Moon Rising, one of many tracks from that record that they played in Davenport. The show was a doubleheader, with the band playing one set at 6.30 p.m. and another at 9 p.m. The opening act was The Spiral Staircase, a Northern California band known for their hit, More Today Than Yesterday, released earlier that year. A review of the show was published in the Times-Democrat, written by Sherry Riccardi, the same reporter who talked with Simon and Garfunkel and Hendrix the years prior. She called the show fine, alluding to a sort of transactional nature in CCR's 45-minute performance, which ended abruptly with no fanfare. That feeling went both ways, apparently as drummer Doug Clifford seemed only somewhat satisfied with the audience, according to interview with the Times Democrat. The crowd here was very reserved, he said, of the estimated 4,000 in attendance at RKO Orpheum Theater. All we got was polite applause after each number. We didn't even get an encore here. He turned his attention to the Midwest as a whole. We found Midwestern crowds more subdued and passive, Clifford said. The crowds in California are very loose. If you go to a rock show and nobody offers you a joint, it's unusual. Clifford followed by reassuring that the band doesn't use or advocate for the use of any drugs. He later said the band got their initial inspiration from black musicians like Fats Domino and Little Richard, calling it the purest form of rock and roll. 
In her description of their onstage attire, Riccardi painted the band in a more southwestern image. The San Francisco-originated group, who formed 11 years ago, came to the stage in their working clothes that consisted of blue jeans, western-style shirts, and boots, she wrote. The drummer wore an organdy navy western shirt with gray-striped bell-bottoms. His shoulder-length hair was neatly combed until the music started. His violent, rhythmic movements and streams of perspiration soon had it plastered to his face and neck. He seemed to enjoy the feel of it. After their show in Davenport, the band hit the road for one last gig in Des Moines before returning to California. Like Hendrix, who appeared in Davenport the year before, CCR frontman John Fogarty became a symbol of anti-war sentiments in the ensuing months. Fortunate Son was an anthem of the cause when it was released in October, and the song went on to become one of the band's defining hits. But in 1972, Creedence Clearwater Revival broke up. They even became one of the rare bands from that era to do it for real, splitting and never reuniting. Decades later, Fogarty described the band as a time bomb in its final years. John's older brother, CCR guitarist Tom Fogarty, died of AIDS in 1990. Riccardi concluded in her review that CCR took great care with their sound in Davenport, but more than anything brought a sort of congeniality to the stage. Perhaps the depth of their performance was, fi- was best described by a young girl clutching a Clearwater poster to her, she wrote. She said to a friend, they are great musicians, but most of all, they're beautiful people. The band never returned to the Quad Cities, but the QC did, at least lyrically, leave an impression on CCR. Months after their visit to Davenport, the group released It Came Out of the Sky, a politically driven simple, excuse me, single that opens with a line referencing a familiar place. It Came Out of the Sky landed just a little south of Moline, Fogarty sings. Jody fell out of his tractor, couldn't believe what he's seen. And that was that final in the series, Timeless Tickets. Thank you, Teresa. Moving to the local section of the paper today. A couple stories here. I'm going to read this one, The Flavor of the Bend. East Moline officials discuss revitalization. This story is written, or this article is written by Grace Kennecutt. The path to building a downtown for generations to come is beginning to take shape in East Moline. The city was awarded a $23.7 million raise, that's R-A-I-S-E in caps, grant in August of 2022. Funds are being used to connect the city's older downtown, centered around 15th Avenue to the Rust Belt area and the Bend. Speaking to media Wednesday evening at the Bend Event Center, city officials and design team members spoke on the progress and timeline of multi-million dollar project. Mayor Reggie Freeman said the project was developed with members of the community to help develop the old factory sites. As development has gone on, he said, people have been big connecting the old downtown to the newer entertainment places along the riverfront. Quote, this is a big investment for our city and our partners. We know that the project will help re-embed our downtown and improve East Moline for generations to come. And that's a quote by Freeman. Project is being broken into three phases, with the first phase focusing on the bend, second phase on the Rust Belt, and the last phase extending the 15th Avenue District to the Rust Belt and Bend. City engineer Tim Kamler said the project has three primary goals, improve connectivity 
and connection through infrastructure improvements, place making and signage, continue to support economic development, and facilitate safe pedestrian and bicycle travel between the riverfront and residential areas. Kamler also noted the general plans for what the city is doing for revitalization can't be changed. The designs were submitted on the application to the federal grant. What the, what the city is looking for from community members is specific details on the plans, he said. What we are really looking to get is input on is exactly how those components look and feel, Kamler said. Based off of current redevelopments at the Bend, design team members described the location as big, dynamic, futuristic, and modern. The goal is to build upon what is already there and incorporate aspects into the design. The Bend is mixed used with a few hotels, event centers, and an apartment building. It also includes the riverfront walking trail. Bonnie Roy with SWT Design said the project will not be creating from scratch but building on what is already there. Roy wants people to look at it as what brings stand out, what things stand out, and make the bend unique. What is the flavor of the bend, she said. One of the goals is to have people uh, one of the goals is to have people help make distinct elements of what the flavor of the bend is yet also making it cohesive. The distinct elements then be incorporated into improvements while also trying to maintain a uniform look in some areas for when everything becomes connected. Improvements being proposed for the bend include connecting the bike route, transit facilities and pedestrian routes to the Great River Trail, new sidewalks to connect additional development, extending Bend Boulevard and 6th Avenue to 7th Street, signage and streetscaping improvements, and connecting to the Rust Belt. One of the biggest issues is ensuring pedestrians can safely cross the railroad from 7th Street to the riverfront. Kamler said they are looking at potentially including a separated trail from the roadway for pedestrians. The trail would include ADA accommodations and potentially crossing arms for those using the trail. Improvements and updates at the Bend will be the first to go to construction, planned for 2025. Rust Belt updates would go into construction 2025 and extension of the 15th Avenue District in 2027. The nearly $24 million project also requires a local match of about 20% or $5 million, city officials noted during the media briefing. The funds can come from the city, donations, or state grants. Wednesday was the first public input meeting for residents to provide feedback at the Bend. Future public input meeting dates include spring 2024, downtown 15th Avenue, summer of 2024, the Rust Belt, and fall of 2024, extending Bend Boulevard. Residents also can go online to the downtown East Moline website for more information and to provide feedback. Airport sees busiest January in years by Gretchen Teske. Winter storms and canceled flights could not stop the growth of the Quad Cities International Airport this January. Last month, the airport had a 7% increase in outbound passenger traffic compared to the year before, according to a statement. American Airlines made the biggest jump in passengers inbound and outbound. 
increasing its market share by 12 percentage points thanks to daily service to Charlotte that began December 20th of 2023. This was the busiest January since 2020, the press release said. An overwhelming number of regional airports still have fewer flights today than prior to the pandemic, including MLI. But January's activity shows that as airlines add capacity back to our market, we can fill planes, said Ashley Davis, public relations and marketing manager. Demand in the Quad Cities is strong, particularly for American Airlines' new daily service to Charlotte. We hope this will give airlines confidence to continue investing in our market. The airport was growing prior to the pandemic, but the extended global decline in travel caused a massive disruption to aviation. The pandemic made a looming pilot shortage worse and caused some regional carriers to close. However, it also led to some new carriers emerging and new strategies, the release said. Delta, which used to have the largest market share in the Quad Cities, retired all 50-seat aircraft in their fleet. In addition to strong traffic in January, typically one of the slowest air travel months of the year, Allegiant Air also announced its plans to extend service to Phoenix Mesa throughout the summer. For the past several years, it was a seasonal offering, with service paused between May and October. Airlines decide when and where to add service, but we are continually evolving our approach to advocacy and data collection so we can tell the best possible story about our region and travel needs, Davis said. Coalition host rally. Group looks to put question on parental rights on Illinois ballot. Olivia Allen wrote this. Just under 20 people rallied in a Moline Church Tuesday as part of their effort to bring a question of parental rights and, quote, non-emergency medical care, end quote, to Illinois voters in November. The Parents Matter Coalition hosted the rally at Faith Evangelical Free Church aiming to collect signatures for its Right to Parent initiative, which, if successful, would put the following non-binding statewide advisory question on the Illinois general election ballot. Quote, shall the written consent from a minor's parent or guardian be required before any entity, person, clinic, or school can provide a minor under the age of 18 years any non-emergency medical procedure, medication, pharmaceutical, or any gender modification procedure, gender identification, counseling, or gender therapy, end quote. To secure this question on the November 7 ballot, the Parents Matter Coalition is aiming to collect 500,000 signatures by April 15. To have a question put on the ballot, they would need 8% of the total votes cast in the governor's race in 2022, which would be around 320,000 signatures. It's a question that really, I believe, pierces the heart of every person that cares about the welfare of our children, said Parents Matter Coalition representative Tracy Smodilla, Smodilla, who helped lead the ballot initiative. The group formed about a year ago in rural Wheaton. The initiative came in response to certain Illinois state guidance and legislation the Parents Matter Coalition believes has reduced or eliminated parents' roles in making life-altering decisions with their children. I remember being a kid, being 12 years old. I remember being a wacky teenager as well, Smodilla said to the small crowd Tuesday. She continued, I couldn't decide what to have for lunch, let alone make a decision whether to have sexual relationships with a boy my age or whether or not I wanted to be a boy or a T-Rex, end quote. Smodilla called current Illinois law and guidelines quote, government overreach, end quote, which she claims is reinforced by non-governmental organizations, 
namely the American Civil Liberties Union and Planned Parenthood and Public Education. One rally attendee, Melissa Stromberger of Gen Geneseo, called gender-affirming care and counseling a sensitive topic that parents of minors have a right to be involved with, especially in school settings. It's one thing to allow Tylenol or aspirin if my kid has a headache, she said. It's a completely different thing when they're asking really big questions related to gender expression and preference. While she doesn't have any kids herself, Stromberger said she was a therapist for two years and worked with several families, even with the child who transitioned. Based on her experience, Stromberger said it's very apparent that minors need their parents or legal guardians to explain heavy topics like gender-affirming care and expression. I strongly think that mom and dad need to decide how they want to have those conversations with their children, Stromberger said. She continued, while I don't agree with the affirming part, I do believe that children are children, and in society, we need to still protect them, end quote. Unlike a ballot referendum, a ballot advisory question is non-binding, meaning that if the Right to Parent initiative earns enough signatures and the support of a majority of voters, uh, I seem to have lost my place. Oh, sorry. It doesn't guarantee public policy change or legislative action. But for members of the Parents Matter Coalition, the point is to raise awareness, Smodella said, adding that many of the people PMC encountered while gathering positions were unaware of the existing laws. Despite being non-binding, if supported by voters, the ballot question would also allow the PMC to hold Illinois legislators accountable to their constituents, she added. To many Parents Matter Coalition advocates, any talks of a minor's gender identity and reproductive health care decisions should include parents every step of the way, even when children don't feel safe having their, these conversations with parents. Smodilla said the focus should be on remediating parenthood and those families not eliminating parents' rights, also noting the state's existing processes for minors to skirt parental consent. Smodilla dubbed current Tracy, uh, Illinois law and guidelines democratic Marxism, in quotes. She was especially concerned about Illinois' expanded list of mandatory reporters and proposed House Bill 4876. This bill would amend Illinois' definition of an abused child to include any child who is denied access to necessary medical care. This is a quote. Access to necessary medical care, including but not limited to primary care services, abortion services, or gender-affirming services, end quote. Another area PMC members take issue with is the Illinois State Board of Education's non-regulatory guidance on supporting transgender, non-binary, and gender non-confirming students. The document, created in 2020, specifies schools are not required to seek parental consent to support transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming students. This is guidance in every school district that instructs teachers on how to deceive parents, Smodella said. With the repeal of the Parental Notice of Abortion Act in 2021, Illinois no longer requires parental consent for minors seeking hormonal birth control or abortions, though it does generally require parental consent or gender-affirming treatments such as puberty blockers and hormone replacement therapy. However, minors can bypass parental consent for limited primary health care services if health care providers reasonably believe the individual seeking care 
understands the benefits and risk of any proposed primary care or services. Additionally, minors must be identified in writing as a minor seeking care by one of the following, an adult relative, homeless or social service agency, school social worker or public school homeless liaison, a religious organization representative, or a state licensed attorney. If enacted, the HB 4876 would strike this section from Illinois' Consent by Minors to Healthcare Services Act. The existing provision doesn't cover invasive care services beyond standard injections, non-surgical fracture, fractures, or laceration care. And additionally, specific consent requirements or procedures may vary depending on the treatment and health care providers' policies. Contacted by the Dispatch Argus Quad City Times, a spokesman for the project of the Quad Cities, an agency specializing in LGBTQ plus health care services, offered no comment on the initiative at this time. So, folks, you are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We're going to continue now with uh, Teresa and the obituaries. Richard Harden, 92, of Davenport, passed away Friday, February 16th. Funeral services will be Monday, February 26th at 10.30 a.m. at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home. Visitation will be Sunday, February 25th from 2 to 5 p.m. at the funeral home. Additional visitation from 9.30 a.m. until 10.30 a.m. Monday. Burial will be in Davenport Memorial Park. Those left to honor his memory include Karen, his wife, children Connie, spouse Louis, Moore, Terry, spouse Robert, Moeller, Paul, spouse Kirsten Harden, Lori, spouse Gerald Wade, Randy, spouse Carrie Harden, Sarah, spouse William, Corbin, 17 grandchildren, and 19 great-grandchildren. Full obituary and online tributes may be expressed at www.hmdfuneralhome.com. Lila Morris, 51, of Davenport, passed away Sunday, February 18th, at her mom's house. Visitation will be Saturday, February 24th, from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., with a funeral service at 11 a.m. at Rafferty Funeral Home, 2111 1st Street A, Moline. In lieu of flowers, a memorial fund has been established. Lila was born December 24, 1972, in Davenport, the daughter of Harry and Karen Yeoman Morris. She married Christopher Lemaire I. Lila worked as a shipping receiving clerk at Olympic Steel, Bettendorf. Spouse Shirley Dean, Milan, and James, spouse Melanie Kirk, of Cedar Grove, North Carolina. She was preceded in death by her father, Harry Morris, stepfather, Lawrence Heaton, niece, Genevieve Lemaire, and nephew, Christopher Lemaire III. Condolences may be left at www.rafferty.funerals.com. Joyce Jeanette Jansen, 89, of Davenport, went to be with her Lord and Savior on Tuesday, February 6th. She died peacefully after a short illness. Joyce was born July 1, 1934, in Davenport to William and Pearl Fromm, where she graduated from Davenport High School and was employed by Northwestern Bell Telephone. She married Ernest Jansen on December 19, 1952, in Davenport. They traveled to Germany while he served in the U.S. Air Force, returning to Davenport after his discharge. Together they raised three sons on the family farm in Eldridge. 
Joyce was active throughout her life, helping on the farm, serving as a Cub Scout den mother for all three boys, playing cards with family and friends, dancing, gardening, and spending time with her family. Joyce and Ernie retired to Chiraw, South Carolina in 1985. While there, she was active as a Sunday school teacher, a daycare director for the First United Methodist Church, and a volunteer at St. David's Church Thrift Store. She continued to be active in the community until Ernie's death in 2000, I'm sorry, after Ernie's death in 2011, until she returned to Davenport in 2017 to be closer to her family and friends and her home church, St. Matthew Lutheran Church. Joyce is survived by her sons, Steve, spouse Shelley Jansen of Harrisonville, Missouri, Jeff Jansen of Bella Vista, Arkansas, grandchildren Stacy Jansen, Jay, spouse Erica Jansen, Jimmy Jansen, Sarah, spouse Heath Cummings, and Anna, spouse Thomas Ponder. Seven great-grandchildren and two great-great-grandchildren. Joyce was preceded in death by her parents, infant brother Floyd W. Fromm, sister Virginia Owens, husband Ernest, son James Jansen, and grandson Christopher Jansen. Celebration of Life service will be held at 1 p.m. on Friday, February 23rd, at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Davenport. In lieu of flowers, the family suggests donations to St. Matthew Lutheran Church or charity of your choice. Thank you, Teresa. Going on to uh, move into the uh, opinion section of the uh, paper. And I'm going to read this one. It's called Another View, Wall Street Journal. And this one is, uh, uh, the heading is Weather Tax Wealth tax campaign is never ending. Vermont is one of 10 states flirting with bid for millions from unrealized gains. Written by Kornheiser. Wealth taxes are like a specter in search of a host, and an already overtaxed New England state may be the first to succumb. For Vermont lawmakers want to tax residents unrealized gains, hoping to finally break the barrier that's kept them from draining assets' values year after year. The state's top tax legislator has spent recent weeks pushing bills that would dial up taxes on high earners. The biggest reach is a proposal to tax the paper gains from assets above $10 million. The plan would slap Vermont's 8.75% top income tax rate on half of those gains. That means a family whose business gains $3 million in value could owe $131,000 even if they don't take out a single dollar of cash. Like levies on capital gains, the new tax would cut into investment returns and leave well-off Vermonteers less reason to deploy their money in wealth-producing investments. Unlike a capital gains tax, the wealth tax would create a mess of confusing estate appraisals and endless disputes with the Revenue Department. This is why no state currently taxes unrealized gains, but the author of the Vermont Plan says the novelty is the point. Quote, Given the state of our national politics, it really is up to states to be moving these things along, said Ways and Means Committee Chair Emily Kornheiser last year. Lawmakers, and then it goes on, lawmakers in 10 states are working on wealth taxes this year, and she wants the progressive Green Mountain State to be first to enact one. Vermont is a popular haven for escapees, 
of the punitive taxes in New York and Boston, and GOP Governor Phil Scott has made the modest suggestion that a wealth tax might drive those these newcomers out. Alas, Kornheiser has an answer for that one. Before introducing the bill, she brought in a Cornell sociologist to debunk the myth of millionaire tax flight. Never mind the masses leaving the Northeast for Florida and Texas. Relying on sociology explains a lot about progressive tax policy. Few state tax increases are launched without the aid of teachers' unions, and the national wealth tax push began with the American Federation of Teachers, AFT. Uh, Kornheiser wrote her bill with help from Fund Our Future, an advocacy group that traces its origin to a 2019 AFT campaign and has spawned tax proposals in California, Maryland, New York, and more. The unions want to open new revenue streams for future contracts. Kornheiser also introduced a fallback plan to tax higher earners if the wealth tax bill doesn't win enough support. Instead of targeting assets, second bill adds a 3% surtax on incomes above $500,000, bringing the state's top income tax rate to 11.75%. This plan B could raise nearly $100 million a year in revenue, at least until New York's tax refugees decide to relocate elsewhere. And we'll read the next piece. It's by Kevin Frazier. Congress should support the spread of accurate news. The Post Office Act of 1792 is the most important piece of legislation you've never heard of. It turned the postal network into a marketplace of ideas rather than a means for generating revenue. Today, our primary channels for the spread of ideas, social media platforms, are steered by profit rather than the public's interest. If that status quo persists, you can expect our democracy to continue to deteriorate. That's why we've got to study and learn from the Post Office Act, Congress's postal power, and the expectations of the founders. A quick historical review suggests the government not only has the authority to intervene in the marketplace of ideas, but actually has an affirmative duty to do so. Our democracy will fail if people don't have access to timely, accurate, and actionable news. That's why the founders established and expanded a postal network. Thanks to the Post Office Act, the 69 post offices in 1788 became 13,000 by 1840. What's more, the law subsidized the spread of democratic information by lowering the postal postage rate for newspapers and eliminating postage for the exchange of news between printers. Over the course of a few decades, Congress made sure that Americans in every nook and cranny of the country could read about current affairs in quality newspapers. Two centuries later, it appears Congress has forgotten its obligation to maintain a primary channel for the distribution of democratic knowledge. That obligation is baked into Article 1, Section 8, Clause 7 of the Constitution, which grants Congress the power to establish post offices and post roads. Given that no alternative channels for mass communication were around when the Constitution was written, this clause should be interpreted as a grant of authority to develop a robust marketplace of ideas. You might ask why the founders didn't instead grant Congress the power to ensure widespread access to information on current affairs. But that's akin to asking why we didn't have chat GPT policies in 2004. You can't regulate what hasn't been invented. 
When the founders authorized congressional control over the postal network, they were authorizing governmental intervention in the only channel of mass communication that had ever been known. A quick thought exercise proves my point. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 13 empowers Congress to provide and maintain a Navy. The Navy in 1790 looked a lot different than today's Navy. If this clause wasn't read in an instrumental fashion to permit Congress to maintain a functioning Navy, then one could argue that Congress should only fund 36-gun frigates, even though technological advances have since made those ships obsolete. Today, the postal network is no longer the primary channel for the distribution of news. That title belongs to social media platforms. Yet in the same way our postal network used to be perceived solely as a moneymaker, we have been lured into accepting a narrow conception of social media platforms as economic entities rather than essential and irreplaceable channels of communication. The Post Office Act should remind us that the founders would have vigorously contested the primary channels of communication being exclusively operated by private entities and for all intents and purposes solely in the interest of profit. Thomas Jefferson noted that the success of a democracy hinges on the people having, quote, full information of their affairs through the channel of the public papers. That's why he called for a communications network that ensured those papers penetrate the whole mass of the people. Jefferson went so far as to say, quote, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. A democracy requires a primary channel for distributing news about current affairs. If that channel has been in the hands of a few merchants with insufficient concern about our collective democratic health, do you think these revolutionaries would have accepted that, un that untenable status quo? The only rational answer is no. So let's learn from our founders, demand a reconception of our information ecosystem that serves people rather than profit. In particular, scholars and policymakers should explore a new interpretation of Congress's postal power to unleash a long overdue reconfiguration of our marketplace of ideas. And that again was written by Kevin Frazier, an assistant professor at the Crump College of Law at St. Thomas University. One more opinion before we go to sports. This one says, no, Trump does not equal Russian dissident Navalny. And written by Jonah Goldberg. Alexei Navalny didn't simply die. He wasn't just murdered. He was tortured to death. Didn't happen on the rack or mid beating, but Vladimir Putin, who had tried to eliminate him earlier, slowly killed Navalny all the same. Putin sent the Russian dissident and anti-corruption activist to the gulag with the aim of grinding him down with the hard labor, isolation, hunger, and shabby medical care until he died. Russia's claims that he died from sudden death syndrome, even if true, changed nothing, given that being poisoned with a Soviet-era nerve agent, 2020, and thrown into an Arctic labor camp, 2023, re presumably increases one's chances of falling prey to SDS. The question of whether the timing of Navalny's death was deliberate matters geopolitically, but not morally. If Putin ordered Navalny's death Friday, might shed light on his state of mind. Was Putin sending a message in advance of next month's election, in quotes, in Russia? Was Putin buoyed by his recent military successes in Ukraine or his related political victories in the U.S. Congress? Or was he, as some Russian propagandists have speculated, somehow motivated by the insipid comments of Tucker Carlson a few days earlier? <laughs> 
On his way back from interviewing Putin and celebrating Russia's superiority to America in a series of embarrassing videos about Moscow supermarkets and subways, Carlson appeared at a forum in Dubai. That's why he hadn't questioned Putin about the then-still-alive Navalny, Carlson suggested and said, quote, every leader kills people, some kill more than others. Leadership requires killing people, end quote. No doubt Putin agrees. What Navalny's death and life say about Putin's Russia should be obvious to anyone who doesn't believe leadership requires killing. What it says about the moral rot on parts of the American right is another matter. For numerous right-wing and uh, Republican figures, the real lesson of Navalny's killing is that Navalny equals Trump, in the words of Trump-pardoned writer Denise uh, D'Souza. The plan of the Biden regime and the Democrats is to ensure their leading political opponent dies in prison. There's no real difference between the two cases. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich concurred. Navalny's death, quote, is a brutal reminder that jailing your political opponents is inhumane and a violation of every principle of a free society. Watch the Biden administration speak out against Putin and his jailing of his leading political opponent while Democrats in four different jurisdictions try to turn President Trump into an American Navalny, end quote. On Monday, Trump invoked a comparison on social media. His first mention of Navalny's name wasn't to condemn his death or Putin's role in it, but to cast himself as an American Navalny. Quote, the sudden death of Alexei Navalny, Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country, end quote. He declared before spewing the usual self-serving grievances. Condemning such false moral equivalence was once central to American conservatism. When someone told National Review founder William Buckley that the U.S. and the USSR were the same because they both spend a lot of military uh, on the military, he replied, quote, that's like saying that the man who pushed the old ladies out of the way of an incoming bus is like the man who pushes old ladies into the way of an incoming bus. Both push old ladies around, end quote. Trump is not an innocent anti-corruption crusader brutalized and murdered for championing democracy and the rule of law. Plausible criticisms of the legal cases against Trump are ample, but even if you agree with all of them, and I don't, the notion that Joe Biden's is more Joe Biden is the moral equivalent of Putin is a slander not merely of Biden but of America itself. Indeed, one reason we know it's not true, publicly criticizing Putin's treatment of Navalny can land you in a Russian cell, criticizing Biden's alleged treatment of Trump can land you in a Fox News studio. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section. There's a lot of basketball, high school basketball going on. Let's start with Moline rallies to avoid upsets. Illinois Regional Boys Basketball, Moline 56, United Township 51. Fourth quarter surge lifts Maroons to regional final by Samir Mala. Survive and advance. Moline avoided a regional semifinal upset at the hands of United Township with a fourth quarter surge outlasting the Panthers 56-51 on Wednesday night at the Panther Den in East Moline. Down 39-36 after three quarters, the defending state champion Maroons outscored UT 20-12 in the fourth quarter to rally for the win and earning a spot in Friday's regional final. This was a great game, Moline head coach son Taylor said. United Township has unbelievable talent over there. I thought we played really well. Trayvon Taylor was unbelievable. Braden Freeman made good plays. I thought we had a really good team effort. Moline turned up the defensive pressure in the fourth quarter, which proved to be the difference. 
Coach Taylor told us at halftime that even though we are down, we are only down by six points, which is not that much at all, Trayvon Taylor said. We knew we would get back in the game, stop them, and score. Moline trailed 39-36, heading into the fourth quarter. United Township senior Caden Terrell, who has a team high of 22 points on 7 of 12 shooting, was a key reason the Panthers, who are 16-12, and 12, still had the advantage answering the pressure with timely buckets. Terrell is unbelievable, Coach Taylor said. He's a four-year starter and an unbelievable player. We did a good job in the first two meetings, but Terrell went off on us. However, Trayvon Taylor, who is 9 for 13 from the field, 3 for 3 from three-point range, and 10 for 10 from the free-throw line, made sure the Maroons would play another game on Friday night. He scored 15 of his game-high 33 points in the fourth quarter. The six-foot-five Taylor played bully ball in the post and hit some in-rhythm three-pointers for Moline to pull away for the five-point win. The team and the energy was great throughout the whole game, Trayvon Taylor said. It was awesome that I was able to knock down several shots towards the end. The Maroons did not score a single basket in the second quarter, zero for nine. The Panthers put on a defensive clinic while also converting several second-chance points on the offensive end. Despite scoring only four points, all free, throw, free throws, Moline was down only 24-18 to 18 at halftime. United Township's defense was outstanding, Coach Taylor said. Dominic Roden, Caden Terrell, Josiah Macy, and Sincere Simmons, they all are unbelievable defensive players. It was not easy, and we knew it was not going to be. It was a struggle at first because our energy was too low in the first half, Moline Jr. Trayvon Taylor said. What was a six-point deficit turned into a 28-26 lead with under four minutes left in the third quarter. Moline freshman point guard Arthur Abbey was the catalyst for the comeback, several of his second-half steals leading to fast-break opportunities. Arthur is a bulldog, Coach Taylor said. He is so good defensively, good point guard. He's going to have a great, great career at Moline. But he was big for us, for us defensively tonight. Arthur is an amazing, amazing defender, Trayvon Taylor said. Amazing scorer and ball handler, too. The Maroons, whose record is 26-6, and face Bradley Bourbonis, who beat Pekin 60-35 on Wednesday in the regional final at 6 p.m. Friday. The winner secures a spot in the Pekin sectional semifinals on Tuesday. We just have to keep on playing better and better, Coach Taylor said. Alleman set for sectional final in 2A. Pioneers take on Stillman Valley tonight, as Samir Mala wrote this. The Alleman girls basketball team is making history one game at a time. Pioneers' 58-46 win over the third-seeded Marion Central Catholic Hurricanes in the Oregon sectional semifinals on Tuesday night vaulted the Pioneers to Thursday's sectional championship game. Pioneers have not gone this far into the Illinois High School Association playoffs since their Class A state title run in 2005. Well, it's very exciting, Alleman coach Steve Lord said, uh, said, but we have to focus one game at a time and hope to practice the next day and go from there. That was a very special team back then. We will feel, we feel we have a special team now, but we have to take this one game at a time, he said. In Tuesday's win, senior Claire Hokey scored a game-high 27 points, 15 from the free-throw line. Claire is capable of scoring like that each night, Ford said. I am sure that Marion Central Catholic was not as familiar as some other schools are about Claire and what she is capable of doing. She came through for us big and had a real nice night, he said. Senior Audrey Erickson and sophomore 
Adeline Voss, along with Hokey, combined for 53 of the Pioneers' 58 points. I did not realize that, but they all have done a really nice job, Ford said. The ball has been shared pretty well. No one's looking out for themselves. Everyone's looking out for one another. They're playing some really good team basketball right now. You hope that at this point in the season, we are playing that type of basketball, he said. Um... Ford was especially pleased for his seniors on the team, including Hokie and Erickson. I'm just real happy, Ford said. I was looking at the senior pictures on the wall and just happy for those girls. They have experienced COVID and a couple of losing seasons and then now having success. That kind of just puts it in perspective for me, just being happy for them. I am also happy for the rest of the players, but especially for the seniors that have been through it all. Up next for the Allman Pioneers, 29-4, is the second uh, sectional championship game against Stillman Valley, 30-4, and four, at 7 p.m. Thursday at the Blackhawk Center in Oregon. That'd be tonight. Stillman's Valley, Stillman Valley is a very, very good team, Ford said. We saw them in the holiday tournament, and they knocked us out in the regional championship last year, he said. Pioneers won the holiday matchup 48-37. Cardinals won last season's postseason contest 42-35. Cardinals have won 14 straight games and have held each of their three tournament foes to an under 50 points. Most of the time, they run some zone to keep the opponents from scoring quickly and scoring a lot of points, Ford said. Their zone defense is very good. It's tough to get into middle of their defense. We have to do some screening, maybe get Claire some shots inside and get her working in there. That will create some openings for uh, the outside players. The Cardinals also have junior point guard Taylor Davidson, who will be a fourth local focal point to stop. And uh, they have a very, very good point guard in Davidson who creates and is responsible for a lot of their team scoring, whether she is scoring herself or assisting, Ford said. We're going to have to make sure that we control her to give ourselves the best chance. Maybe what's going to happen, people can go to that now, okay? Okay, I'm going to switch to college basketball here in St. Ambrose. Bees fall short at St. Xavier. Battling back from an early double-digit deficit, the St. Ambrose University men's basketball team had its rally come up just short in a 64-60 Chicagoland Collegiate Athletic Conference setback in hosting St. Xavier in the Shannon Center on Wednesday evening. The contest ended up being competitive between the teams battling for fifth place in the CCAC standings. SAU, whose record is 13-14, and and SXU, whose record is 16-11. Both came in with a 10-8 league records. Former United Township High School prep Atem Ago led the Fighting Bees with 17 points, and Jake Friel, who scored the first bucket of the game and a late three-point play to keep the Bees' hopes alive, finished with 11. SAU, playing without senior Will Spriggs, trailed 32-19 at halftime. However, SAU tied the score at 43 with 11 minutes, 18 seconds left in regulation when Ignacio Dacunda, who had seven points, game-high 16 rebounds, split free throws. SAU gained its second lead of the contest at 50-49 when Grant Mason hit a layup at the 6-minute 45-second mark. But that was short-lived as free throws gave the Cougars the lead back 15 seconds later. 
Two more Dakunda free throws with three minutes, three seconds, gave the Bees their final lead of the contest at 55-53 with three minutes, three seconds left. Trying to play the long game and stretch it out, SAU watched the Cougars make five of six free throws in the final 33 seconds to ice the victory. Andre Brandon led SXU with a game-high 23 points as Cedric Johnson added 16 for the winners. And that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Doug Kretzinger. My partner at the microphone has been Teresa Whitaker. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. want to thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. I hope you have a good day.